it wouldn't be any good if they didn't have the really, really good technological and operational underpinnings of the wider organization. So, you know, why aren't you asking to speak to them? Do you have those people? If you don't, it's not your fault, but don't think you can do this without that. Welcome to Perspectives from the Top. I'm Chris Robart, global keynote speaker with unique leadership experience from military, business and government, best-selling author and your guide to greater success. Together, we'll discover powerful insights from the world's leading thinkers, doers and trailblazers, the must-know trends, thought-provoking revelations and practical actions you can use immediately. This is your exclusive and personal shot of insight and inspiration to help you get to the top. Welcome to you and all of our perspectives from the top community of listeners around the world. It's great to share the insights of such successful people with you to help you get to where you want to be through their insights and ideas for action. Our guest today is Kieran Martin, who founded the UK's world-leading National Cyber Security Centre for the UK government and headed it for the first four years of its existence. Kieran has served in government for 23 years, working directly with five prime ministers, having held senior positions in the Treasury, that's the UK Finance Ministry, the UK Prime Minister's Office, as well as Government Communications HQ, the UK's Secret Signals Intelligence and Security Centre. In 2020, Kieran was honoured for his work by the Queen and has received a range of other awards internationally and in UK in recognition of his work in cybersecurity. He's now Professor of Practice in the Management of Public Organisations at Oxford University's Bolivacnik School of Government advises several public sector organizations on cybersecurity strategies and is one of the leading global authorities in the field of cybersecurity. Karen, welcome to Perspectives from the Top. And to start off, we have a, a question that we always ask our guests, which is about, you know, you've been so successful in your career, but Back in the dim and distant past, we often find that there was somebody that was a catalyst to get this person to go in the direction they went in. Uh, a family member, a mentor, an old boss. Was there, was there perhaps one person or a couple of people in your past that sort of shaped you and got you to where you are now? Well, thanks for having me and thanks for your kind words. It's nice to know that uh, at least someone thinks it's been a, a successful um, career. I suppose I went in so many different directions in the course of my life that there was no single person who guided me in any particular path. And I could probably spend the whole show talking about um, multiple people. So with apologies uh, to those I've uh, left out, here's a handful. Uh, so in terms of bosses, I had the privilege to work for... I had um, a number of uh, a number of tr uh, terrific bosses. Uh, one for six years. That was Gus O'Donnell, now Lord O'Donnell, the cabinet secretary and head of the civil service. He was someone of tremendous ability um, as an economist and indeed as a leader. But what always stood out for me was um, his unbelievable ability to remain calm no matter what was happening and to put things in perspective. He'd been through all sorts of crises when he was John Major's press secretary when I was still at school. You know, the crises range from the 
Black Wednesday economic catastrophe to actually um, an attempt on his and the cabinet's life by the IRA um, in a Downing Street cabinet meeting and his ability just to uh, see the big picture and get on with things and deliver was just um, uh, astonishing and just his temperament. I worked very closely with him for six years as essentially chief of staff. I believe he raised his voice to me twice. Uh, thoroughly deserved um, on both occasions, but I mean that's an astounding sort of partnership. The other person who only worked with for, for six months was the director of GCHQ who appointed me, Sir Ian Lobham. Now Ian was completely different. He was a much more introverted. Um, he was a, a lifer at GCHQ um, with no experience outside uh, the organisation, but he turned it into as. Um, the Guardian said when the Snowden leaks happened, uh, he turned into a global intelligence superpower. And that was just sheer drive and force of will and ability to make people follow him. I once characterized Ian's leadership style as hugging the organization occasionally a bit too tightly. And um, you know, he really drove it on, but he got, um, he got people to come with him. Um, I also very early in my career had a remarkable woman, the Director of Communications at the National Audit Office called uh, Gabby uh, Cohen, who at a time when I was directionless and was at a very, very junior level, um, did something that I hope I've done for other people, which is just let me try out abilities way beyond my level of responsibility but under careful supervision and that was really, really important at a time when I didn't think I was going anywhere and I didn't at the start of my career. Uh, that was uh, very important. Gus's calm is also something that has been very important to me and probably learned from my father. And the other person I would mention, my mother was the person who inspired me to make big choices later on. Uh, she was a teacher until she was in her mid-50s and then left but took up educational technology and became a pioneer of the use of technology in education despite never having switched on a computer until her mid-50s. Got a PhD wow. and published several books, taught online, in, That's taught online in the US until her early 80s. So the passion to keep going and try new things no matter how uh, advanced your years get is something I take from her and I think that one of the things that given the demographics that I find genuinely inspiring about that story is that's kind of what I think a lot of people should be doing because people have so much to offer and they can try out new things. I debuted in cybersecurity at the age of 39 and it transformed my life. But that's but that's an amazing, that's a beautiful point for all of our listeners, the fact that, you know, there's the sort of assumption that the die is cast at 25 um, and that's it and the beautiful story is the fact that you didn't get into cyber security uh, until later on and, and your mother in particular you know, not even sort of touching keyboards and then becoming an expert on online education across not, you know, not just in Northern Ireland or UK but across the world that's wonderful she was doing extraordinary things that are apart from the course now but in the mid 1990s I remember an A-level politics class in my hometown of Oma. I wasn't in it. It was a few years after I'd done my A-levels. I was at university. But they were video linking with um, uh, people in the Congress of the new post-apartheid South Africa. Uh, so A-level politics students were talking to members of um, the South African uh, Congress, National Parliament, National Legislature uh, over a video link as part of their studies in the mid-1990s. That's, that's absolutely, that's amazing. Um, but, but then now linked to that, you know, obviously you're born, born and brought up in Northern Ireland and obviously, you know, over uh, the sort of 70s, 80s and uh, into before the Good Friday Agreement, the troubles were there. Um, 
And growing up in that context must have had a significant impact on the way you lived your life, on the way you thought about things. Even though you were doing the normal things of going to school and 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 all the rest of it, uh, how how did that impact you? The sort of way you thought and the way you looked at life, because I think that's a, a really interesting uh, perspective that many people who haven't been in that sort of environment. Uh, probably don't quite understand. Well, first of all, I should say that thankfully, unlike many others, far too many others, um, I wasn't very closely directly affected. There are uh, thankfully no um, stories of troubles related to tragedy, um, particularly close to me even. Uh, I mean, the, t- the town I grew up in, Oma, was relatively peaceful until tragically right at the end of the uh, troubles after the signing of the agreement where it suffered the worst attack of all, but I'd, 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 I'd left by, by then. Obviously, it impacts you. Um, but lots of people had it much worse than than, than, than than I did. Secondly, you know, it is the only life you've got, so it appears normal. And the abnormal thing when you go to university in England and so forth is that, you know, the streets aren't um, populated with um, you know, armed security and, and, and there are no uh, barriers and town centres at night and and, and, uh, and so on. But I suppose, you know, looking back, what did, um, what, what did you take from it? I suppose there are two things, one obvious, one less obvious. I mean, I suppose the obvious one was um, you know, just the dangers of community polarization. And I, I know contexts are different around the world, but we are uh, seem to be living in a politically angrier times with, and of course, technology impacts on this, but people um, uh, living in singular environments, not hearing other perspectives is inherently dangerous. Um, the, the less obvious thing but for my career, I suppose, um, you know, um, I was born in '74, um, the same year as a number of hugely important reforms to the state took place, um, essentially to remove some of the intrinsic discrimination of the old state. And so, growing up, I rarely, if ever, um, experienced uh, uh, any of that. In fact, by the time you know, I was sort of you know, sentient, if you like, in my early teens. Um, you, Public authorities were almost going out of their way to show scrupulous uh, fairness. But you talk to people a bit older, and that legacy of unfairness and distrust and demonstrable lack of integrity in the functions of government is so corrosive. And you do take it for granted in the United Kingdom, even these days in Northern Ireland, because you have to be well over 50 to remember any of the sort of, you know, institutionalized discrimination and bad practices of the, um, of, of, of the old days. Um, um, but we do take it for granted and we shouldn't because, you know, you can complain about poor public services and poor civil services and so forth. But, you know, now where I teach in Oxford at a global school of government with students from 50 countries every, coming every year, and many of them are living in countries where you, you're talking about things like integrity and values and public life and fairness towards citizens and so forth are just not things that are deeply rooted in many societies across the world. And it's profoundly dangerous and difficult when that's the case and completely changes the character of society. You know, on a few occasions in the course of my government work, I won't go into details, but you know, I remember once in a foreign country, um, there was an altercation um, uh, near me in a, in a hotel. And talking to the people involved afterwards, the thing was, when the police turned up, you didn't quite know whose side they were on. <laughs> and when you have that sort of thing, now, um, uh, you know, um, so you know, the, the reforms to the state in Northern Ireland of the 70s were absolutely crucial. I think, you know, you talk about the agreement and so forth, but you know, rem- um, 
building, if you like, a sense of not just trust but participation in the state um, and, and having people be confident in um, its fairness or just, it, you can't do anything else without that. No, and, and that, but that's why I asked you the question because, you know, the UK listeners, you know, the other side of the water, uh, make the, made the presumptions that you made and about Northern Ireland before um, even changes were made. And there was an assumption that because it was part of the United Kingdom, everything was above board, everything was fair. And, and it's just interesting to, to talk to somebody, even though you haven't significantly experienced it, that there was a significant problem there that nobody who was just living the other side of the water even b believed or understood was existed, um, which is just, that's just why I asked the question to, to help people get that context. And I think what's important about that is that, and this is true in Great Britain, um, you know, in the rest of the United Kingdom, it's important in um, the changing demographics of the Republic of Ireland, it's important in European societies, it's important in every society. You know, if you have a group, if you've groups of people of any size who feel fundamentally disaffected from the state and um, the state behaves in a way that foments that disaffection, you really don't have the basis of a functioning, decent and high-performing society. And so, you know, you don't, you don't govern on the basis, and you shouldn't shape governments on the basis of, you know, if I have enough support to get by. Uh, you know, obviously electorally you have to get enough support to get by and so forth, but when you're in power, whether that's on the political side or on the uh, permanent um, uh, civil service side, you know, you just you have to exercise that power and responsibility with scrupulous fairness and impartiality. That's that, that, that's the way it should be. So you studied hard at school, um, um, with a little bit diversion in terms of your sporting prowess in Gaelic football, um, the indie rock band that you uh, contributed to now and again. Um, I just find that that interesting that there has to be that balance between the hard academic work and, and being able to sort of let off steam. You went to Oxford, you did history. Um, and then what I find interesting is you, you, you were at that point that a lot of us have been at in terms of what are we going to do now? And I don't know whether you thought you were predestined for public service, but, but you know, there's that group of people that says, no, 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 public service, forget that. I'm going to go into the city and make loads of money and I'm going to be happy with the money. And, and another group of people who say, actually, there's something about public service, the greater good, even though it's not as well paid. So, I mean, if, if you want, dive into the pre-university the pre uh, escape mechanisms, but also, you know, just that's, that question about do you go for the money or do you go for the public good? Well, firstly, on the sort of hinterland stuff, um, uh, I'm assuming you got this information. I have a glorious set of friends from Omar with whom I'm still in touch, and one of their hobbies is to post true but um, irrelevant and slightly embarrassing uh, um, details of my um, of, of my past life. So I was a very enthusiastic um, uh, Gaelic footballer. It was a big part. It taught me a lot, actually. It's very much rooted in community. Obviously, it teaches you about teamwork and so forth. And it's still to this day, despite the fact it's it's sort of top matches are beamed around the world. It's wholly amateur, which uh, and rooted very much in, in in place and locality. So you know, the top teams are not based on big money signings. They're based on people 
playing where they live and grew up and, and so forth. So it's an extraordinary sort of spectacle. Um, uh, the rest of it shows the power of the of, of the modern internet. You know, it's certainly not disinformation because it's all true, but whether or not it uh, is, um, uh, you, you know, messing around um, on, on keyboards uh, for, for, for a while. It just and, adds to the uh, tapestry. Great fun. It adds to the tapestry. But I think, you know, I always enjoyed, um, I did work reasonably hard, but I always enjoyed, and I think it was important for development, trying out different things. Sometimes I think I tried out a bit too much and didn't specialize in anything, but um, I had great fun. Oxford was a wonderful experience, and you know, it was funnily enough, I don't quite know why, maybe it was the BBC Soft Power, because I watched some documentary about it when I was four with my grandmother and always wanted to go there and never thought I'd get in. It was remarkably open and welcoming. Oh, wow. It was remarkably open and welcoming, you know, um, to someone from my uh, background in the, um, in, in, in the early 90s. Um, I had a fantastic time and actually so the choice it was a choice I sort of never made because funny enough when I look back you know, sort of going to Oxford was almost an ambition in itself and when I finished I didn't really know what to do and like a lot of people I just tumbled down to London I worked for a market research company for a while I never sat down and thought you know money or money or public service I do come from a family of public servants and we were always reasonably comfortable but never um, noticeably uh, uh, wealthy um, so I, uh, and I never felt particularly motivated by um, money I suppose um, at the back of my mind there was this thing where you know I had studied a lot of history and studied a particular type of history where the sort of discussions we were having about nature and systems of government were of particular interest to me. So um, I wasn't a civil service fast streamer. I had drifted into this market research consultancy. So I applied for, um, when I was struggling with that a bit, I applied for a very junior job in the National Audit Office and they took me on. And that's where, as I said in the first question, I got um, you know, a leader who took me under her wing and um, you know, very much uh, allowed me to, uh, uh, to develop. And by that point, I did catch the bug. It was a very exciting time. You had government coming in after 18 years in opposition. You had the major constitutional reforms that formed part of my life later and uh, not just obviously in Northern Ireland with the agreement but with uh, Scotland and um, Wales. Um, there was, I think, um, uh, there was an excitement about public service at that time and uh, by the time that excitement may have waned and we got gone to the more cynical age of um, <laughs> the post-crash 21st century, I was, I was, I was hooked, I was in. And that's so. Then you were in the system, so to speak, and you went through the traditional civil servant process, um, as you mentioned, up to constitution director at the cabinet office. Um, so that was the, that was within the traditional civil servants, the, the system, the leadership ethos, and 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 all the rest of that. Did you, having worked with people in, in that world, there is a sort of a different attitude to why you do things to the commercial world and, and a sort of slightly different style of leadership um, that, that I would say, is it more consultative, more focused on this greater good rather than, but, but you, also, you also do a lot of very, very detailed planning. How did you sort of grow and develop within that context over over those years? What was the sort of skill you had that enabled you to get to where you got to? So my sort of career in the civil service was it numbered 23 years in total, but there were two very distinct parts. It was the pre-GCHQ and National Cyber Security Centre part and the post. And 
they were chalk and cheese. Um, you know, there was some overlap in that, you know, uh, when I got to GC. Start, start, start with the civil service and, and we'll talk about the cybersecurity because uh, that's really interesting. Sorry, go ahead. No, well, and in terms of, you know, um, uh, things like, you know, values and so forth, I think we might come on to this later. The cybersecurity job actually completely reappraised my approach to the private sector, but we can probably cover that, um, cover that a bit later. I think the skills, um, I worked in the National Office, then the Treasury, and then the Cabinet Office. Um, they are small organizations. Sorry, sorry, for listeners, sorry, Kieran, for listeners, Cabinet Office equals UK Prime Minister's Pretty much, Office. Thank you. If you're uh, not UK. My apologies for being uh, UK centric uh, there. Um, but they are small, um, uh, uh, and certainly, so the National Audit Office is an independent body. So we'll talk about the Treasury, which is the Finance and Economics Ministry, probably the most powerful institution um, in the British government. And then the Cabinet Office, which is the Prime Minister's Department, which by the standards of most um, you know, heads of government offices actually comparatively weak in the system. Um, but they're both small organizations um, that are focused on policy. So, you know, the Treasury is certainly in my day was roughly a thousand people. Uh, the Tax Collection Authority in the UK, HM Revenue and Customs, is 90,000 people and you know, the Department of Work and Pensions, which Social Security Department, similarly. So um, it's a very, very different um, set of uh, drivers. Um, it tends to be, um, uh, it, it's, it's very political, it's very fast-paced. Um, tries to be very evidence-driven, although obviously the politics do have to be um, very strongly uh, taken into account. But you know, it it sort of feels like one would imagine. You know, um, certainly the Treasury feels like a sort of you know high-powered management consultancy type of environment, rather than say a big business, if you like, you know, a, a big retailer or a big logistics company or something or something like that. So I suppose one of my um, skills, I suppose, was you know, which is a prized skill. Um, uh, was, if you like, a policy fixer. There are various problems you have. How do you, when the Freedom of Information Act comes in, how do you safely declassify uh, early some very sensitive papers about the financial crash of, um, of, of, of 1992? How do you adapt, um, which led me into national security work, how do you adapt the intelligence services who historically um, for eight decades, their existence was officially denied. So there's no legal recourse in post 9-11 on some of the allegations of human rights abuses. People started suing them. The government had to contest those cases. There was no means of um, contesting secret material in court. We had to go on and, and, and find one. So it was sort of fixing that type of policy um, and, and, and making, things, making things work in that way. What was interesting about it was you mentioned lots of planning and so forth, and the civil service does do lots of planning, and much of it is good. But in terms of the HR framework, when you got to the senior civil service, and I was, there's a formal part, like the civil service in the UK in a whole is somewhere between, depending on when you're talking about 400 and 500,000 people. Um, the senior civil service is about three to 4,000 people, a formal sort of set of, of ranks. And when I got to the senior civil service at the age of 31, there was this, competency framework. I'm sure many people in many organizations um, uh, listening to this will recognize a competency framework. I've seen many and of them. The one that wasn't in it, which certainly in the Treasury and Cabinet Office was um, determined more than anything else, your success was judgment. And that's not in the competency framework, you know, leadership, analysis, analytical abilities, etc., etc., are all there. But actually people wanted judgment. There's a good part to that. You know, you it, politics is complicated. I think one of the differences with the private sector is, you know, 
uh, there is no profit and loss account, and I don't mean that in a bad way. There are a multiplicity of things that determine success. You know, outcomes, but they take, may take years. Public satisfaction, how do you measure that? Political impact, et cetera, et cetera. You know, efficiency of resources. You know, they're very, very um, um, uh, hard. So, you know, a good part of that is incentivizing good judgment to balance all of those competing interests is a good thing. Um, the area where it gets difficult, and it's a common criticism of the British Civil Service, is that judgment is often measured by the avoidance of mistakes and failure, which of course leads to risk aversion. Um, so, you know, um, uh, when I, some of the things that I was proudest of at the time early in my career, I'm not not proud of them now, but they're more difficult to talk about, and I sort of think about them less and less because actually they were about putting out fires. <laughs> They were about just you know stopping bad things from happening. They were about you know correcting mistakes. They were about getting people out of a tight spot, etc., etc. Um, I was quite good at that. Um, uh, but overall, you know, and you can build a very good career out of that. But overall, I was very glad that later in my career, the uh, cybersecurity work allowed allowed me to do something more. <laughs> but it's that, it's that beautiful contrast between are you known as the expert firefighter or have you actually created something that will grow and flourish in the future? And I think from a personal perspective, a little bit of firefighting is fun, but it's nice to leave a legacy. Is that, is that how you might sum it up? I, th- I think so. And um, I think uh, also, you know, there was something around, you know, I learned, I learned so much in that uh, early period. I, you know, the other thing was it gave me fantastic exposure to senior politicians, senior civil servants. You just saw some amazing operators. I mean, I mentioned um, uh, some of them. You saw the public spiritedness of both poli- of, of most politicians, and, and I worked for ministers of of three parties because I had Labour ministers, I had Conservatives, and of course Liberal Democrat ministers for a five year uh, period in my. Um, uh, 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 career, so you, 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 you certainly saw that, and you know, doing things like when I helped Gus O'Donnell plan the sort of um, change of uh, prime minister in two thousand and seven, which was uh, went, which went um, uh, pretty smoothly. Started some of the planning for what ended up being the coalition um, uh, negotiations of twenty ten. Although I was in a different job by the time that happened. And then, of course, the Scottish referendum, which wasn't, you know, which was, you know, quite a niche, but obviously hugely important um, uh, uh, policy issue. But again, in the sort of remarkable flexibility of Britain's unwritten constitution, you had a um, a political assumption that, unlike most countries, that the secession of one part of it is allowed. But because until relatively recently there wasn't um, much measurable support for Scottish independence. Nobody had given any thought to what form that uh, process might take. And then because of the election results in Scotland in the summer of 2011, uh, all of a sudden, consensually, you had to build one because Prime Minister Cameron had already conceded that there should be ref- a referendum. You know, that's the sort of, you know, uh, that, that last one in particular, I think, is something, although it's obviously fiercely contentious now and many people criticise what we did back in 2011 to 2014. You know, that is something that I think, you know, I, I don't want to give the impression that everything was sort of, you know, political frippery and firefighting and so forth. We did do some really sort of interesting and substantive um, uh, uh, substantive things. But in a sense, you know, in terms of things like leadership and so forth, um, you know, it was a particular type. You weren't sort of, you know, you weren't taking a subject and motivating large numbers of people to do things, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You were, taking a, you were taking a defined problem on behalf of political leaders and trying to give them the best advice on how to, on, 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 on how to grapple with that. 
And that and that then led on to your your move into GCHQ as as uh, head of cybersecurity, and, and then on to the creation of the um, uh, National Cybersecurity Centre. Clearly, as, as we previously discussed, the transition from working with traditional civil servants in Whitehall to a Cheltenham GCHQ and very, very technical, very focused people, um, and then trying to create a, a new entity where you had to lead. That must have been an absolutely massive change in, in your leadership style and indeed your whole environment. Oh, yeah. It was completely life-changing. I mean, everything about it. I mean, looking back, it was a wonderful experience, but there were times, particularly in the early days, where I just thought, you know, what what is this about? Um, You'd gone from, you know, the Treasury and the Cabinet Officer was in yards of each other in the street of Whitehall, which dominates the British government. Cheltenham is 100 miles away, um, behind barbed wire. No mobile phones, cell phones. Um, uh, so, you know, very, because of the secrecy of a lot of what the organisation does, although cybersecurity um, is, uh, uh, is much more open. Um, you know, a very, very different environment. Uh, the workforce didn't... Sorry, so for listeners listening, just imagine, just imagine one moment what it is like to go to work without your mobile phone and being unable to dive onto social media now and again, because that's what everybody at GCHQ has to do. Yeah, I mean, things are adapting all over, classified work all over the world uh, these days, but certainly in 2014, it was, um, um, it was a sort of internet-free zone um, and uh, connectivity-free uh, uh, um, uh, zone for the, for, for the workforce. Um, um, I think um, you know, the people there, um, many of them astoundingly gifted and highly specialised. People sometimes say of the of, of state service, you know, they don't do anything better than the private sector. There are people in technology employed in that organisation who, you know, big tech would and indeed do, uh, you know, bite their hands off, uh, try to bite their hands off for, and actually to their enormous credit, they're so dedicated to what they call the mission, which is a phrase I heard a lot in Cheltenham, uh, that they don't go. Um, uh, so absolutely brilliant. Um, most of them couldn't care less about politics, whereas obviously if you work in the Whitehall civil servants, I'm um, saying that you have to be impartial, but you do care about politics because you can't survive working for ministers if you don't. Um, and dealing in a level of specialism that is beyond, you know, um, almost com the comprehension of the generalist. Um, and actually, the reason I was posted out there um, initially, really, was to help them put out the policy fires of the Edward Snowden leaks, which had you know, plunged the organization into some fairly challenging circumstances. And of course, they didn't have any prior capacity to deal with that sort of thing in terms of getting press and legislative scrutiny and that sort of uh, stuff. So, you know, I did all of that in the early days, but the long-term plan was to get me into cybersecurity. I was actually quite unsure and indeed told Ian Lobham that I'm not sure I'd appoint myself if I were you uh, because of my lack of, of, of background. What, what was special about it as a leadership, I mean, also it was a jump from, you know, my Constitution Director had about 160 people. Um, a set of cybersecurity at GCHU had about nearly a thousand, and certainly the NCSC was about a thousand. Um, so there was that jump in numbers, you know, the first time where you can't obviously know everybody by name and that sort of thing. Um, but just, you know, um, uh, trying to channel the absolute world class brilliance of what they could do um, into, you know, hopefully a more useful. Um, um, uh, public good 
And I remember, so in my induction week, um, my induction week was I mean, it was unforgettable. Sorry, sorry, Kieran. Maybe, maybe worth, maybe worth for our listeners. Maybe worth for our, just give a very, very quick overview of what GCHQ does for those who aren't in UK, uh, which will give them a flavour for what you had then had to do. It's a digital foreign intelligence and cybersecurity agency. So, in a sense, many countries, particularly in continental Europe, have those functions split. They have a cybersecurity agency, which tends to be quite open, and then a foreign inte- digital foreign intelligence agency. The Americans and the rest of the so-called Five Eyes Partnership, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia, tend to have them in the same place on the sort of, on the sort of poacher turned gamekeeper um, um, approach. You know, if you're very good at under law, because everything's governed very strictly by law, if you're good at breaking into systems, then you'd be very good at defending them and so forth. And um, the GCHU's most famous uh, employee, Alan Turing, the codebreaker of the Second World War, actually spent most more of his time throughout the totality of his career, spent more of his time on the information security of the United Kingdom rather than breaking other people's codes. So you can see, um, so that's the sort of synergy, if you like, between the two. Historically, GCHQ, in terms of information security, was just about protecting military and intelligence secrets, the sort of thing that Turing did during the war. But as the whole world digitized at the turn of the century, cybersecurity became in the literal sense of the word, a popular undertaking, not a specialist one. You know, you and I care about cybersecurity, our families do, our businesses do. Um, it's not just the preserve of elite government, military and intelligence assets anymore as it was in the, as it was in the past. So in my induction week, um, I remember um, they'd organized, you know, 8.30 to 5.30, half minute slot, or sorry, half hour slots of briefings about these mind-blowingly technical things. And obviously by the middle of Wednesday, I was getting um, somewhat overwhelmed. And a chap came to see me uh, called Dr. Ian Levy. And um, I went, I met him in the coffee bar in GCHQ and um, eventually asked him to cancel the rest of the afternoon because it was just absolutely fascinating. You know, it was this sort of, um, you know, he's a world-renowned expert. Um, he's now a technical director of the NCSC. Um, started talking about what the organization did, but what it could do and some of the frustrations, if you like, about not being able to, if you like, channel some of their expertise in cybersecurity into a more general good. And because I was preoccupied with the Snowden-related work for about six to 12 months afterwards, I sort of kept this in the back burner and then I had various you know, trips to the US and trips to other places and eventually I came back and I gathered some of the you know, top technical and operational leaders together and I said, look, um, in terms of cybersecurity, lots of people seem to think, you know, growing problem, growing concern, government intervention, well-funded but not making the difference it might be. And a lot of this seems to be about policies and I have to mention them, I won't delve into them because they're not that interesting. You know, promote information sharing and public-private partnerships and everybody's saying that in America and everybody's saying that elsewhere. But we've been doing that for years, it doesn't seem to be doing very much. And I sort of paused thinking I've probably committed heresy and lost the trust of these people who have been trying to, you know, they were a bit skeptical of me, you know, just another blow in from Whitehall there to embellish the CV for a couple of years and then go. Um, and eventually one of them said, I think it was Ian, just said, oh, so glad you said that. That's the sort of thing we've been saying for years. And I said, well, look, you know, I do know a bit about how to work the Whitehall system. Um, I know that it was just after the 2015 election and the Conservatives had come back to power on their own before the referendum. Chancellor Osborne was very, in- George Osborne, who was the sort of second in command of the Cameron government, was um, very interested in cybersecurity, was looking for new ideas. And we just pitched them a whole bunch of things. Why is why are market forces taking care of some really difficult parts of the 
cybersecurity problem like threat intelligence, but why are they not doing things like the massive spoofing of, of um, identities, the massive spoofing of um, brands? And the answer is because nobody has commercial incentive to protect their brands. Because if your brand gets spoofed, um, uh, you know, if you get a fake email from your favourite retailer, you don't blame the retailer. It's not their fault, uh, and it, so they don't lose money. Whereas they do lose money if they get hacked. So they buy threat intelligence, but they don't pay for brand protection, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we kept thinking, right? How do we automate brand protection? And, and you know, you have to get a bit technical then, because information sharing and public-private partnership, anybody can understand that. That's the problem. It was meaningless. Here was, look, here's something we could introduce. We could do it for free, pilot it in government networks, which makes it far harder to spoof um, uh, brand. And we did a pilot with the tax authority in the UK, HM Revenue and Customs, which was the most spoofed brand in the UK because people were being offered um, fake emails about offering them tax refunds. And we reprogrammed their, the way their domain worked around the internet. And um, we said, if you're getting an email that looks like it's from pretending to be from HMRC but isn't, because here's how you authenticate HMRC's domain, uh, don't send it, send it to us. And uh, we captured half a billion, 500 million fake emails in one year. So 500 million times people tried to send uh, fake emails pretending to be from the British Tax Authority and they didn't arrive. So that's the sort of cool stuff we started doing. And you know, from those sorts of ideas, we said, look, we could do this much better as a subset of GCHQ because you still need all the sort of cool stuff that you get from foreign intelligence to, to, to try to mitigate the big nation state threats and so forth. But we need to be out in the open. We need to be telling people about password managers. We need to be telling people about multi-factor authentication, We need, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So we pitched the idea and got brilliant political backing for, um, if you like, a hybrid model where the National Cybersecurity Center would be part of GCHQ, but would be public facing. Interesting. Interesting. So it, it's, it's that. Uh, <laughs> It must have been quite a, an amazing moment because when you sat down with all of those experts and made your sort of semi-proposal, you were effectively unleashing their own thoughts, their own potential, because I suppose what had happened was they'd all been thinking these things. They'd all been saying, look, we have the potential to be able to do all of this extra good. But nobody before yourself had actually said, hey, look, ladies and gentlemen, if you were given the opportunity to do more good, how would you do it? Well, I mean, that's how I'd like to think about it. I'm sure all of us have their own perspectives and everybody tells their own story, but I suppose if I did one thing, it was connecting that. One of the interesting things is I did, I did spend time learning as much as I could about the technology. I was never going to be anything like those people, but you know, you did have to understand how it worked. Uh, you know, so I did get them, I set aside time to be taught. You had to understand some of the detail. You just couldn't, you know, so um, uh, so you had to, you know, you couldn't just sell their ideas because you had to understand them first. And I, and I think that's a that's an interesting um, that's an interesting insight for, for for leaders listening. That to some degree, you need to have a basic understanding of what your people are doing, so that that you can even at the most. Uh, even at the surface level, understand how the jigsaw comes together. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, cybersecurity is a subject. I think you know, I, I spend my time you know, immersed in it all the time, and I think um, it does require a huge plurality and diversity of skills. So, you know, the um, people 
in other countries who like the NCSC model would come and see us and they'd always say, can we see your press office? Because we recruited this amazing press office, the best public communications on cybersecurity in the world. I'm pretty sure about that because most governments weren't doing it. Then I'd say, look, you're asking the wrong question because, you know, setting up an excellent comms team, it was hard, but lots of people have done it in lots of different fields. It wouldn't be any good if they didn't have the really, really good technological and operational underpinnings of the wider organization. So, you know, why aren't you asking to speak to them? Do you have those people? If you don't, it's not your fault, but don't think you can do this without that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. And so therefore, in the process of doing all of this work, um, you have gone from the traditional civil servant role into the cybersecurity role, but now because of that world, you're also interacting a lot with the private sector as well, which again is is another world in itself. Um, and, and how did you find that balance between your civil service experience, your GCHQ tech world and tech role, and and the outside commercial world? Learning about um, working with the private sector much more closely in that role than I'd ever done before was a real eye-opener. Um, I think there'd be two things I'd highlight. One was there was a culture change in GCHQ long before I joined. I think Ian Lobman was largely responsible for it, um, which was very open to the private sector within the parameters of necessary secrecy. And on that induction week, one of the other few things I remember after all this time, I was shown a chart, which was, you know, GCHQ's budget, global tech industry, right? And obviously it dwarfed it and I said, look, we can't control this anymore and we can't, you know, we can't change it in that respect. You can influence it and all the rest of it. We can do what we need to do for national security. But, you know, you can't achieve your objectives without some form of engagement with the private sector. So you're always very open to that. The second thing was in cybersecurity, which there's a burgeoning global industry of several hundred billion US dollars, um, it completely and I'm sort of ashamed of what um, of, of the past on this. It completely removed the standard conceit that many public servants have about the private sector, about motives and values and so forth. They were incredibly collaborative. Um, cybersecurity companies, I mean, like any company, they've got to make a living, they've got to make a profit. Um, so they sell stuff that's commercially useful, but in the course of that, sometimes it isn't, or sometimes it's potentially interesting to government, but also sellable. And because we were open to conversations with them and to building trust, they helped us, helped us enormously. So, you know, our ability as the NCSC when it was set up to provide useful information to the British public was massively augmented by private sector capability, massively. It would have been, it would have been a much poorer offering without them. So, um, uh, to that end, you know, looking back on my civil service career, um, there is a conceit um, uh, and this was part of removing it, this experience was part of removing it, not the whole part, but there is a conceit that there's only really one way to make a difference, which is to work for the executive branch of a government, preferably a strong executive branch like you have in the United Kingdom. That's just not true. There are all sorts of ways in which people can make a positive difference. And, you know, the private sector, good private sector security companies are just gold dust. Yeah, and, and we've had other guests, you know, on who, who are entrepreneurial impact investors who are having a, a greater impact on poverty in the third world 
uh, by doing what they do, by, rather than top-down government money that gets stolen and, 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 and other things. So I think it's – and I find it interesting, having spent some time in the Middle East as well, that in the Middle East there is a much more of a – a fundamental agreement that society is about true partnership between business, public sector and the people. Yeah, and I mean, selfishly, I think one of the incentives for me to do this was that, you know, the brilliant people that were working for the government who could have worked elsewhere, but you wanted them focusing on the problems that only the government was allowed to solve. You didn't want them putting out, you know, minor fires somewhere else. Get the private sector to do that if you can. So, you know, um, it was a very interesting experience in that respect. So our, our overall of that... That vast sort of significant career with those really interesting different chunks in it. You know, you've been a very, very successful leader and, and achieved much in that. Um, what are your perspectives about the key things that leaders need to do on a day to day basis to get the best from people wherever they may be? I was never a great theorist of leadership and never really responded well to lots of the sort of formal uh, training. So I find it quite difficult to. Um, I find it quite difficult to, uh, uh, to, 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 to talk about, if, if, if I'm honest. I think um, there is a thing, certainly in that sort of context of you know, not being an expert in a sea of experts, about having something, and that's where the story of the NCSC comes from, having something that you can deliver for them that makes their lives, professional lives, more fulfilling. I think that's one thing. From a public service uh, um, uh, viewpoint, I think the thing that we were able to do at the NCSC, at least most much of the time, was focus on, you know, particularly in a secret or quasi-secret organisation <clears throat> where you don't have some of the same pressures of day-to-day -day accountability through Parliament and the media as you do and all this. You have to focus on some things that are making an improvement. You can choose things that are interesting to do. You can choose things that your partners like you to do. But actually, you know, we did try and ask the question, is this good for UK cybersecurity? Uh, before we did something, you know, this may be very interesting and a very interesting technical challenge or maybe a priority of somebody else, but actually is this going to help the overall IT security of the UK? I think so focusing on that quite um, uh, uh, relentlessly. And then I suppose um, the, the final point was, you know, um, maybe at the risk of repeating myself, but trying to understand enough about what they did so I could communicate it effectively to politicians and to the general public in a way that was sort of consistent with the skills that I'd developed earlier in my career. Yeah, I think actually, you know, I don't necessarily adhere to half the leadership theories anyway, because in the final analysis, I think it's about what leaders do day to day. But you've alluded to some of those in terms of what you have done over your career uh, around listening to people, around creating a clear vision uh, um, within that, uh, asking them for their ideas, uh, showing you care about what they want to achieve, you know, answering the what's in it for me. And, and it's all of those, you know, really simple, practical things that leaders do day to day that show the people they're working with that they care about them and they want to work with them to achieve mutual success. Uh, that, that is, in my view, what's, mo what's most important, not the leadership theories. Um, so so in, in, in that sense, through what you've told me and our listeners, if you've picked up those things that have helped you deliver success that, that aren't really leadership theories. They're just what, what good leaders do naturally on a day-to-day -day basis to work with the people they need to work with. 
And it's about trust. In the end, the, the people you were working with trusted you. Well, we had, we had quite a lot of fun. I think we did build. It was quite a nice, I mean, from the safety of having government backing and therefore and a government budget, um, you know, so it wasn't a real entrepreneurial feel, but there was a very different feel to it from, say, a, a established government department in those days. It was a bit of a startup feel without the, commer- without the serious commercial pressures. But that's, that's also really interesting because to some degree, you know, you've done civil service and you've also done a, a, a quasi-startup. Well, without the commercial pressures, but yes, we did something. There was some risk. I mean, it was reputational more than anything else, but um, there was some risk. I think given what you were doing, there was an element of, there was an element of risk because it probably it hadn't really been done, done before. Um, so to, just to sort of f- finish up, you know, you're now teaching at Oxford. What, what next for you, Kieran? Teaching at Oxford, um, and um, uh, I, which I absolutely love. Um, it's one of the. It's the other thing that said. There's more than one way to make a difference. I mean, I've got students from 50 countries. Um, you learn so much from them. They're from all over every part of the world. Um, so I'm committed to that for the long term. I find it fascinating, and uh, hopefully, it's of some use to the the, the, the students. But but what you said is just another beautiful point that have come up in other interviews. You know, you might be the person with most experience. You might have done this. You might have done that. But that doesn't. It's the same with mentoring. Just because you're the mentor, it doesn't preclude you know preclude you from learning something from the people you're mentoring. You know, everybody's seen things and experienced things that you haven't, and and we all learn from constantly learning from each other, even if these people are significantly less experienced and younger. I've had students who've climbed Everest on the second attempt after a very serious accident on the first one. I have had students who've set up NGOs for uh, refugees. I've had um, uh, students who've worked as doctors in war zones. Extraordinary people. It's a privilege. It, 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 it is. And, and it's, it's a joy to hear you say that because, you know, you, you talk to some people um, – you know, who are CEOs or whatever. And there's this presumption that, you know, they've done everything, seen everything. And as you say, there are some young people out there who have done some amazing things. Uh, Friday, I was interviewed by a young Royal Engineer, Lance Corporal, for his podcast, who just completed 111 days rowing solo across the Atlantic, 4,700 miles. And you just think, wow, it's just some, some of the stuff that young people are doing out there is absolutely mind-blowing. So how can people learn more about you and what you've done and what you want to do um, uh, going forward? Well, a lot of my work is available my, now that I have published more work in my own name uh, on the Blavatnik School's website or elsewhere. If you're interested in cybersecurity, then my former organization, I'm not responsible for it anymore, but it's still doing really well, uh, the National Cybersecurity Center website. And I would encourage people to, you know, um, cybersecurity is a part of everyone's life now. So um, just look at some handy tips. I, I think that's brilliant because it is. Cybersecurity is now part of everybody's lives. Unless we pay attention to it, things can go so horribly wrong on the personal level, on the organizational level, and obviously given some of the stuff you can't talk about that you did on the international and national level if you're not paying attention to all of this stuff. So, you know, thank you so much, Karen, for a really amazing interview. It's been It's been fascinating and definitely listeners – if you're interested in cybersecurity, uh, find out more about Kieran. Find out more uh, about National Cybersecurity Center. It's it's all on the internet. Um, and thank you again for your time. It's been great. 
Thank you, Chris. Well, listeners, there is a lot to reflect on and a lot there that you can think about and do something about tomorrow. What's great is Kieran's changing career focus at 39 from traditional government work to the world of cybersecurity. And also the example of his mother who hadn't touched a computer until her mid fifties and then became a global expert on online education, teaching until her early eighties. It just shows the power we have to adapt change and learn no matter how old we are. Also, letting people who work for you try out their ability in stretching work of some type with your support to help them grow, learn and develop more quickly. Maybe in the process also allowing you to delegate to them to give you more time for only work that you can do. But perhaps his greatest insight was the importance of doing things which benefit not just yourself, but others and the community on which Kieran's focused his whole career, perhaps even sometimes foregoing the opportunity of greater financial rewards of business. Therefore, just think about how you can use some of Kieran's ideas to help you get to where you want to be. And don't forget that in a week, I'll be giving you a more in-depth view of the key takeaways with my insights and ideas for action in Reflections on the Top. If you've used any of the insights you've got from previous perspectives on the top guests and they've helped you, please send me your success stories. Feel happy to connect on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to sign up on the website so you automatically get the episodes as soon as they come out. Thanks for tuning in. Check out the show notes from today's episodes at perspectivesfromthetop.com where you can not only enjoy additional resources from today's show, but all previous ones. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple or wherever you get your favourite podcasts so you don't miss any. And if you really enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating and review. Have a question or comment? Let's discuss it. Message me on LinkedIn. Perspectives from the Top is produced in collaboration with Detroit Podcast Studios. So have a successful week, use today's new learnings and actions, and remember, it's onwards and upwards. See you next time on Perspectives from the Top.